Do you guys have your Bibles? Please open them up. Please open them straight up. To John, that's a good question. To where? To John chapter 7, verse 53. Skipping the introduction today. We're just going to jump right into it. Check this out. Check this out, okay? John chapter 7. If we read the verse that we studied last week, the last verse we studied, verse 52, John 7, 52, says, They replied, and this is the Pharisees talking to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Okay? So, you have these Pharisees talking, and he says, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, what happens right beneath this? What are the next words underneath this? Can, can you just shout them out? Can you just, just shout, what does it say? The earliest man who not Ooh, as Francesca would say, woof. Uh, <laughs> woof, what is this talking about? Okay. Well, let's read it, first of all. Let's read this passage. You have it on your Bibles. You also have it on the screen. We want to read this passage first before we understand what that means so we can get acquainted with this story. But here, here's what goes on here. John seven fifty three says this. They went each to his own house. They, who's they? Well, if this is the right context, we're talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the officials, Jesus, Nicodemus. They all go to their own house. But... Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's that mountain across the way from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is actually a city that's built on multiple hills. The Temple Mount is on one of the hills. Across this little valley is another hill. And that hill is the Mount of Olives. So they're crossing the way, going to the Mount of Olives. And then it says early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So imagine him on one hill. He's going down the valley, up another hill, spends the night, comes back. That's what this story is describing. It says early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. That's what the, uh, the people used to do. So in our setting, I'm the one standing and you're the one sitting, right? But back then, the teacher would sit, which was kind of a weird thing. But it says, Jesus sat down and was teaching them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, we've not actually heard about those guys yet in the Gospel of John. And I can probably explain to you why. But the Pharisees, we know them. They came and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they placed her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay. What that means is that they're claiming that this lady was caught cheating on her husband. Okay. Or this lady was caught um, with someone else's husband. It doesn't actually say which one it is. But either way, that's bad. Right. We don't want you know, husbands cheating on their wives or wives cheating on their husbands. Or women being with the guys who are the husbands. That's not good. Right. So caught in the act. I'll let you fill in the blanks there. Now, the law of Moses says that they should stone such women. That was the capital punishment. Here's the problem. The law of Moses does not say you're supposed to stone the woman. What it says is you're supposed to stone the man and the woman. Okay? Here, here's a weird little question. If she's caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Where's the dude? Okay? Where is he? Well, he's not here. So we can fill in the blanks. Either he was a faster runner than the lady and he ran away or they don't want to get him in trouble. Okay. Which I think is probably what's happening here. They don't want to get the guy in trouble. They want to get the girl in trouble, but not the guy in trouble. It says the law of Moses says they should stone such women. It actually says they should stone both of them. So what do you say? And they're asking Jesus a question. What do you say? What's going on here? 
what do you say, Jesus? If the law of Moses says you're supposed to do this, what do you say? Now, here's what it says next. Verse six, check this out. It says, this they said to test him that they may have some charge to bring against him. Wouldn't it be nice for these Pharisees who hate Jesus to say, ooh, Jesus doesn't even follow the law of Moses, right? That'd be a nice thing to be able to say. It's a nice piece of evidence they can kind of put under their hat and keep and use later. Now, they said this to test him, to bring a charge against him. Then it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So remember, he's sitting in some chair teaching. These Pharisees and scribes come up, bringing this lady caught in adultery. Then he's sitting on the chair. So it says, now, instead of sitting in this chair, he bends over and he starts writing on the ground, okay? He doesn't have a Sharpie or a marker. Imagine the streets are dusty and dirty and grimy. So he takes his finger and just starts writing something. What is he writing? Well, we don't really know. Then it says, next verse, verse seven. Then he continued to ask him and he stood up to them and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay. He says, oh, you want to stone her? Fine. Um, raise your hand if you haven't sinned, right? Okay. Then that person can throw a stone. Now the law of Moses doesn't say that the person without sin should throw the stone. What the law of Moses says is the witness should be the first to throw a stone. Now you might say, why would that well, if you came up to me and accused me that you saw someone steal my car, okay? Let's say we go outside, my car is stolen. And you say, I know who did it. It was Pastor Doug, right? <laughs> and you say, it was him, it was him, okay? You would have to be pretty sure in the Israelite land, the Israelite world to do that. Because if you were really gonna accuse Pastor Doug of stealing my car, you'd have to be so sure. And here's why. Because if he was convicted, you had to be the one to throw the rocks at him first to kill him, okay? So you would really need to make sure it was Pastor Doug, not some dude who just looked like Pastor Doug, right? Which I don't know who looks like Pastor Doug. So um, it was probably him who stole my car. Um, <laughs> this didn't really happen. But the point is, um, they would have the witness do it first just to double check and reaffirm, I need to be sure that this person did this. Now, verse eight, once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. He's writing something, it doesn't say. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So now it's just this lady standing and Jesus there with her. Everybody walks away because he says, if you haven't sinned, then you can throw the stone at her. And they're all like, well, I guess we've all sinned. And they all walk away. Now, this is one of those uh, times where the crowd tries to stump Jesus and Jesus stumps them. It's like the question when Jesus was asked, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to the Romans? And what Jesus said was, you should give to the Romans what's owed to the Romans, but you should give to God what's owed to God. So it was a question to trap him, but he takes the question, dumps it back and traps them. Now, verse 10, what does Jesus say? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Has nobody condemned? Nobody threw a stone. That's interesting. And then she said, no one, Lord, nobody has. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not gonna condemn you right now, but go and sin, or no, go and sin no more. Sorry, that was the opposite of what he said. He didn't say, keep on sin. He said the opposite. He said, go and sin no more. There's a word for that that we use oftentimes. You need to repent. The sad thing, we don't know what happens because it doesn't say if she repented or not. Hopefully she did, but we don't know if she did. This is not a story of forgiveness where Jesus forgives this lady. It's a story of giving this lady a second chance, okay? Here's the problem. That's a great story. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from it about Jesus. 
But here's the problem. Here's the question for you. Does this belong in the Bible? Does this belong in the Bible? Because your Bible seems to be shouting at you. Mine says it in all caps. You see that? It's all caps, right? Mine does it in all caps. Yours probably does too, in all caps. This does not belong here, okay? Well, why is it here if it doesn't belong? Or does it belong at all? I will argue this morning, and I will tell you this right away. Um, I don't think it belongs. I don't think it belongs in the original, okay? It's helpful that we have it, and it's kind of cool that we have this other story about Jesus, but I don't think John wrote this, okay? I think someone added this later on, and that should bring up a huge question of, whoa, okay? If someone added this to John's gospel, what else in the Bible was added to it? Okay, if this is your first sermon, I'm sorry, because this is a little bit different of a sermon. We're not going to be studying this passage. Basically, that's all we'll look at today of this passage. What we want to talk about today is whether or not you can trust the book that's in your lap, whether you can actually trust that that is God's word. And if you can trust that it's God's word, and if it's remained the same over time, or if like a lot of people outside the church say, oh, it just changes over time. It's just a game of telephone. It's changed over and over again. We can never really know what John wrote. We can never really know what Paul wrote or what Matthew wrote or even what Moses wrote in the Old Testament. That's what we're going to study this morning. So the first question I want us to write down, it's actually not a question. This is a Jeopardy question. It's actually an answer to a question. Um, How we got our Bible. I want us to look at how we got our Bible. How do we get it? Well, I think there's some important things. And by the way, if you're used to taking notes just on the front side, turn over your test and look what's on the back. (laughs) There's another side. Um, but it's okay. It's not a test. But I gave you more room than I usually give because this might feel like more of an academic sermon. It's not going to re- really feel like a sermon. It might feel more like a class. So buckle in. That's what we're going to look at. How we got our Bible. That's the first thing. Well, here's what the Bible describes. Here's the first subpoint. okay? God revealed truth. That's a very important thing to understand at the beginning. The Bible claims to be God's truth revealed to us. Now, you might say every time I talk, I'm revealing something to you. But that's not always true. So I have a question for you. I've asked this before. So if you know the answer, um, don't tell me the answer. But I want to ask you the question. If you're not in train, if you're in train, you can't answer this question. Okay. But I want to ask you a question. What's in my pocket? No, phone's not in my pocket. It's back at the tech booth with uh, Matt Bates. Uh, No, my phone's not there. Uh, What? An apple is not in my pocket. Thank you for guessing. But that would be really weird. Okay. I've got a mic pack. Okay. It's not the mic pack. Right. You guys can see that. What's in my pocket? Does anybody, can anybody get, you want to guess? I don't have a pocket knife. I've had a pocket knife before. No, I don't have hands in my, (laughs) hands, what does that mean? Uh, No, there are no hands in my pocket, okay? What's in my pocket? Do you know? Do you know? We don't, that's a good, Michael Bryant, that's great. You don't know. So, is there something in my pocket? Yes, I will say there is something in my pocket, okay? What? What? So we're over the question, is there something? There is something in my pocket, but you cannot know it unless I reveal it to you, unless I show you, okay? I'll show you, okay? It's not a knife. We already said it's not a knife. It, it, I have things in my pocket that are different every day, I suppose. It's a little piece of gum, okay? With the, with the code in it, right? That's what's in my pocket. Here's the thing. You didn't know that. Nobody said that to me. And if you said, oh, well, I knew that, you didn't know that. I had to tell you, right? It's a truth, Okay. Was it true 10 minutes ago that gum was in my pocket? Yes, that was true, but you didn't know it. I had to reveal it to you. Okay. Here's what the Bible claims to be. I'm putting it back. Um, 
Here's what the Bible claims to be. It claims to contain truth that we would not know unless God told us. Okay, think about that. What kind of truth do you think the Bible gives that we would not know unless God told us? Okay, how about this? That we have a massive sin problem that someone needs to be a sacrifice for. Right? Would you know that if the Bible didn't tell you that? No. You might feel bad for your sin, but you wouldn't have a real deep understanding of how, how this sin gets punished. What about um, how Jesus takes the punishment for us? We would not know that unless we had this Bible. So the Bible claims to be revealed truth. Now, how did it get written down? That's a very important question. That's the second thing we want to write down. Okay, men wrote down truth from God. I want you to say that because when a lot of people look at the Bible, they say, well, I don't believe the Bible can be true because it's a book. I've heard this before. And because if it's a book, it was written by men. And because men are not perfect, their book can't be perfect, which means the Bible can't be perfect. That's what people say. Well, here's the, here's the problem with that. Okay? The Bible claims to be from God, but we have a problem when we look at the Bible. We say, well, it claims to be from God, but guess what? It's in words. Right? I have a question for you. You can shout out an answer, okay? Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Here's the question. I heard, some, I heard God, I heard man, I heard people, right? Here's a question. Who wrote, who wrote the Gospel of John? Who wrote the Gospel of John? John, good answer, okay? What about God? Because some of you guys said God wrote it, right? Did God write it or did John write it? Both, that's right, both, yes. The answer is if someone asks you, who wrote John? Was it John or was it God? You say, yes, okay? It was both. Here, here's why, okay? Because men wrote truth down from God. Now, with John, it's an easy one because we think, what's a lot of the things that he's writing down? Literal words from God because Jesus spoke, right? So that's an easy one. But what about something like the book of Romans, okay? We believe that's just as truthful as the book of John, even though Jesus isn't talking in the book of Romans. Paul is writing to the Romans. Well, same thing. Men wrote down truth from God. Now, how did it work? Was God like in their ear whispering? Okay, now say this. Now comma, now pop, uh, space, and then they start spelling it out. No, I don't think that's how it worked, okay? Here's why. Because if that was how God gave us the Bible, the entire Bible would look the same in its style, okay? Two authors that are really important in the New Testament. One of them is Luke. Another one is John, okay? Luke, what did Luke do? What was his job? You guys know? Luke's job? Shout it out. He was a doctor, okay? What was John's job before he became a Christian? Fisherman. He was a fisherman, okay? So now imagine a fisherman and a doctor both write books about the same topic. Who do you think is going to use bigger words? Longer sentences. The Not the fisherman, no. <laughs> he might use run-on sentences, no. Um, the doctor, okay? So when we look at the Gospel of John and we look at the Gospel of Luke, guess what? They're written differently. Does it mean that the truth in them does not contradict? No, the truth does not contradict. What they say about Jesus does not contradict, but they're written differently in these people's own styles. You know what John likes to do? Short sentences, quick. He doesn't have very many hard, complicated sentences where in Greek, there's, there's a lot of different things um, where in the gospel of John, there's a lot of different things that are short, quick, pithy, smart, quick. And Luke writes these big, elaborate, long sentences where he likes to use a lot of adjectives and verbs and participles. Right? John's very simple and careful. Now, um, we're not going to take questions now, okay? Just, okay. Okay. Yeah. Just, yeah. 
You've hit your quota of talking today. Thank you. Um, okay, I want you to write down some verses right here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Write this down. Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, someone mentioned the word inspiration. That is this word, breathed out by God. That means that what we have in the Bible, whether it's in Genesis, Deuteronomy, Exodus, whether it's in the book of Psalms, whether it's in the book of Romans, it is God's word, just like he breathed it out. Okay? And now, because of that, it's profitable, it's good for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So it's good, it's solid, it's authoritative for us because it comes from God. Right? That's this process that men wrote from God. Now, there's another passage that talks about the same thing in different words. And write this one down. This is 2 Peter 1. Verses 20 and 21. This passage says that no prophecy of Scripture, nothing that was written down in the Scriptures, ever comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not that Isaiah decided one day, you know what, here's what I think God would want me to say. Here's what I think God says. And then says, thus says the Lord, and then his own thoughts. Okay? That's not how this works. They spoke from God, and it says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when you have the question, who wrote the Bible? You can answer it with the author, right, of a particular book like Luke or John or Matthew, um, or you could say God, right? That's helpful too. But even more specifically, who wrote the Bible? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit, right? This passage says it's the Spirit. The Spirit is in responsible for the writing of the Word. And if that's true, then whatever these people wrote down, the original manuscripts, when Isaiah picked up a pen and he wrote, and when John wrote, and when Paul wrote, that means that that word was truth, just as Jesus says here, that your word is truth. Wherever God's word is, that is the truth. Now, that's really great, but here's the problem. Your Bible is probably not that old. This is actually a new Bible, okay? This is relatively new. I only got it like a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, okay? Your Bible might have been printed not long ago, but that, those words are very old, okay? The oldest, the beginning of when the Bible was written was right around the year 1500 BC, 1500 BC, okay? So how many years ago was that when the Bible started to be written, okay? 3,500 years. That is a really, really long time, okay? So that's a lot of time for maybe, like these people say, and here's what some people say. They say, well, maybe I believe that the Bible was inspired originally, but it's just changed over time. I mean, you can't possibly believe that the Bible you have today is like the same thing. It's a good representation of what was originally written down, is it? Well, that's the second thing I want to talk about today, okay? Why you can trust that your Bible that you are holding is the real Bible, okay? When I say real Bible, you know, kind of put those in quotes. What I'm talking about is what was originally written down, the original manuscripts. That's what I mean by the real Bible, okay? I do think that your Bible is an accurate representation of that. Now, people say, well, let's just talk about the New Testament first, okay? And that's fine. The Old Testament, um, I think there's very solid proof that the Jews um, copied it well. They have a good number of manuscripts. Their process was good, and it was solidified long before Jesus was ever born, okay? I think there's proof for that. But that's not mainly what we're going to talk about today, because we're talking about John 7, 53 to 8, 11, whether that belongs in the Bible. So um, let's talk about the New Testament first. The New Testament is written in the, the Greek language. That's how it was originally written. Um, and when it was written, what people did is they made a lot of copies. Now, here's the problem, okay? When you make a copy, you go to a copy machine or you have Sabrina make a copy for you like I do um, because I don't know how to work the copy machines. You put it in there. It scans it. Do you ever go to that copy and say, oh, man, 
I think they got some words wrong. No, because it's a photocopy. We have that technology. What about back a long, long time ago? Right? Well, you had to write it out. Now imagine, right, you need someone's notes from school. Maybe they're not notes that you can just take a picture of. Right? I went back when I was in school, um, it's a long time ago, people had cell phones, but the phones had really bad cameras, so you couldn't really take pictures of notes. That was like the big bummer. Um, once iPhones came out, it was nice because you could actually take pictures of your notes and then pull it up and be able to actually read them. So, sorry, that's like kind of a throwback to, you know, 2006. But uh, anyway, they had to copy these down, hand, handwritten copies. Now, there's a lot of copies, and that's the first reason, the first little, little piece of proof that we can believe that the Bible you have is the real Bible, is that we have a lot of manuscripts. So here's what I want you to write down under that second point. We have almost 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. And now, what I mean by that is not like, oh, there's 6,000 Bibles floating out there. I'm talking about handwritten, and the number 6,000 corresponds with the Greek New Testament. We have actually more from other languages. Think about all the languages it was translated into hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Right? Well, it was translated in a lot of languages. So we have it in, in Egyptian languages. We have it um, in Latin, in the language of Rome. We have it in a lot of different uh, languages, but we're talking about the original language. Now, we have almost 6,000. I want to show you a chart real quick. Um, this chart describes how many New Testament manuscripts we have. The first thing on the far left is the New Testament Greek manuscript. You see that? It's just over 5,000. It says 5,856. And that's as of December of 2019. So this is as recent as I could find. Um, that's a lot. Now, look to the one next to it. That's the New Testament in all languages. All ancient manuscripts that you find, guess what we have there? Well, we have almost 25,000 of them. And that's nuts. That is so many manuscripts. And now here's what I mean by a manuscript, if I didn't make this clear before. A manuscript can be a little parchment, which is a little scrap of paper, or it could be a big, long book. Those both count as one manuscript. Whether it's a little scrap of paper they find, whether it's a page of paper they find, or um, even sometimes they were put on stone. They'd copy them. They'd like chisel them into stone. Sometimes they'd chisel them into wax. Um, they make wax tablets. Sometimes they would do it with vellum, which was an animal skin. Sometimes they do it on parchment, which is basically paper, old paper. So that's how many. Now, look at the things next to it. All those, you might say, well, there's barely any. But all those are very well attested. That's the technical term. They're well attested ancient manuscripts. You have things up there like, um, what's one of them? You know, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, right? You guys ever read the Odyssey or the Iliad? Right? Maybe done that before, right? You guys know about Odysseus and Achilles and Helen and Troy and the Trojan horse and um, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know the Odyssey. If you don't know the Odyssey, you'll have to read it in eighth grade. Um, I think I, we read it in eighth grade and then again in 10th grade and again in 12th. It's one of those books that your teachers forget that you've already read twice. So you end up reading it a bunch. So anyway, um, you've got a lot of manuscripts. So I, I'm not like up here saying, I don't think the Iliad and the Odyssey is the original. I think we have really good manuscript evidence because guess what? We have a thousand manuscripts. That's a lot, okay? Well, then look at the Bible. We have a lot more to choose from when we're looking at old documents to whether or not we have the original. Now, this chart is not about how many documents we have. This is talking about the time period in between the writing and the oldest document we have, okay? So again, these are all well-attested documents, things like Plato. You guys ever heard of Plato, 
right? Not the stuff you uh, use with your hands, but the philosopher, okay? I believe that what we have written down is a very good, accurate representation of what Plato said a long time ago in ancient Greece. Now, if you look at the time gap between when he spoke and the oldest manuscript we have that says what he said, look at the time gap. Well, for Plato, it's 1,300 years. What was going on 1,300 years ago from today? Right? Uh, 700, I, I don't know. Uh, do you know? I, maybe a couple things. You know, there was some Seventh Ecumenical Council, if you care about that. That was happening about that time. Um, that's all I can think of that happened in the 700s. Can you think of anything that happened in the 700s? Whatever. Anyway, um, so that's 1,300 years ago, long time ago. Now, look at the time gap of the New Testament. From when the New Testament was written to the oldest manuscript we have, guess what the time gap is? Is it 1,000 years? Is our oldest manuscript of the New Testament from like 1,000 AD? What about 500 AD? Nope. Within 50 years. That is an unthinkable, so close amount of time. And guess what? When we look at those manuscripts and the manuscripts we have now, guess what? Do they like totally disagree and whoa, all this stuff has been changed over time? No. Very, very accurate. One of the most accurate things. Now I said that 50-year time gap. Here's the little piece. It's like a post-it note um, that describes something that happened. This little piece, it doesn't look like much, but that right there is the oldest manuscript we have of the New Testament. And it's interesting because it comes from one of the latest books in the New Testament, which is why that time gap is so short. That time gap, first of all, this is John 18, 31. It's a little section in that. Um, and this comes from about 130 AD. The book of John was probably written around 80 AD. That's why we have that 50-year time gap. That's a very close amount of time. Plato, right? His works, 1,300 years. I think it's still a good proof that we have what Plato wrote. But anyway, this is even closer. So you might say, well, that's just a little piece of paper. That's just a little post-it note. Right? What about a whole book? Well, we got whole books too. Not quite that early, but right here, this is a very famous um, codex, which the word codex means the word book, same thing. It just means a bound piece of, uh, lots of pieces of paper bound together. Codex Sinaiticus. You might recognize that name, Sinaiticus. If you look at the first five letters of that, that says Sinai, okay? So this came from right near Mount Sinai, down in the uh, Arabian Peninsula, there was a monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery. And in that monastery, there was a, um, a winter that was actually a pretty severe winter. It was really cold. Um, and because it was so cold, what they would do is they would take all the, the old pieces of paper and the scraps like we do with newspapers, right? And we take them, and if it got really cold, you would use those as fuel for the fire, Right? Well, they were doing that with a lot of these manuscripts, whether they were old or whether they were new. And the problem was um, they had an archaeologist there, okay? an archaeologist who's looking for the Bible, who's looking for ancient manuscripts. And right before they're about to put this big book in the fire, they said, wow, we found one with a lot of pages. That'll last a long time. Right before they put it in the fire, this archaeologist says, hey, let me, let me take a look at that. Th this looks cool. Oh, let's not burn that one yet. They take a look at it and guess what it is? It's an almost complete copy of the Old and New Testament. The complete New Testament. The oldest one found at that time. They called it Codex Sinaiticus. So the whole New Testament is involved there. That's in the 300s AD. That's how old it is. 300s. So 1,700 years old. Okay? So it's cool that we have a lot of manuscripts. But then what do we do with these manuscripts? That's the second thing I want you to write down. Um, we compare these manuscripts together to find the original. I want you to imagine you had a bunch of recipes bunch of recipes of my wife's banana bread, a bunch of recipes. And on the table in front of you, you had a hundred copies of these recipes, but some of them 
have some mistakes. Some of them, instead of saying, um, you know, uh, brown sugar, they just say cane, they say cane sugar. Maybe they change the word, right? But you have like 100 copies of these. So what you can do, if one of them says cane sugar and 99 of them say brown sugar, guess what you're going to say the right one is? Oh, well, clearly it's the one that there's more of, right? And then some of them are the old first recipes. Others of them, someone just made yesterday, right? Which one is more accurate? You probably go to the oldest one, right? Well, that's kind of what we're going to do. But I want you to take a look at this real quick before we do this. Um, this, you guys kind of recognize what's going on here, right? This is the ancient world. It's not the ancient world. It's just, actually, it's from my Google Maps. I just took a um, screenshot yesterday. Um, you got England up there, uh, the boots, Italy's right there. Uh, you guys kind of see what's going on here, right? Um, this is going to be important because as these manuscripts develop, okay, remember, what are they? They are copies. They're not people saying, I'm going to write a new gospel of John, right? That's not what they are. They're copies of an older copy of an older copy. So, over time, I mean, it's been 2,000 years since the New Testament's been written. Over time, there developed different families. And I want to introduce you to two new families at our church um, coming through the doors. No, uh, it's like child dedications, right? Introduced to new families in the church. No, we've got manuscript families. And the reason we call them that is because they look similar. Just like you and your brother kind of look alike, even though you don't want to look like him, you kind of look like him. Um, and you and your sister, you kind of look similar, even though people say, oh, you guys look like your twins, right? Um, unless you're twins and you are, yeah, that's a good example. We've got the twins, right? You guys look similar, right? Because you're family, also because you're twins. You're really close. Same thing happened with these manuscripts. If there were little variations and subtle changes, guess what happens when those got copied and copied? They're similar. So we got four families. The first family I'd like to introduce you to is the Western family. Okay, these are the manuscripts we find in ancient Rome. They're, they're connected a lot with the Latin manuscripts, but these are particularly Greek Western manuscripts. So you got people in Spain and people in France and Germany and Italy. Now, second family, um, the Byzantine family. These family this family of manuscripts came up in the Greek-speaking church, and we actually have some of these that are newer because they kept speaking Greek in the Byzantine Empire for a long time, actually until about 1400 AD. So we've got a lot of manuscripts from the Byzantine. The problem is they've got so many, and a lot of them are older. Guess what? They're not the closest to the original, so they're actually kind of the worst. Um, so sorry, Byzantine family. They are the ugliest. Now, um, the Caesarean, they're not so ugly. They're a little bit better looking. Um, these come from basically the, the region of Israel. Okay? They're called Caesarean because there's a city um, where actually Paul was imprisoned called Caesarea. And that's kind of where a lot of these come from. But the fourth, the best looking, uh, and I mean this in every sense of the word, the best looking manuscripts are the Alexandrian family. Uh, here's why. Okay? I'm not just saying that, um, although obviously my wife, um, but not you, Alex. Sorry. Not you, Alex, but I um, was not talking about you. Um, that wasn't mean. Are you kidding me? He's trying to claim a thing that I said to my wife. He's like, oh, are you talking about me? No, I'm not talking about you. Okay. So the Alexandrian family, the reason they're the best looking manuscripts is because they're the oldest. Those are the oldest ones we have. They're all kind of from the 100s, 200s, 300s, 400s. That, and then they stopped speaking Greek down there because of all the movements. So anyway, these are the four families. Now, I want to give you some rules. And basically what this study, this is actually a, an entire branch of science. Okay, This branch of science is called textual criticism. What you're doing is, is looking at all the recipes out on the table and figuring out what did the original say. 
That's the science. That's the, the, the science of textual criticism. So some rules. These are just very general rules. These are things you learn on day one, okay? First of all, you want to favor the old one, right? If you've got a new one and an old one, which one do you think is more reliable? Well, as a principle, probably the older one, probably the one that's closer to the original. Also, you want to favor the shorter one, okay? You want to favor the shorter one. Why would you favor the shorter one? Well, there were the, the ugly Byzantine family. They weren't very good looking, okay? Um, those manuscripts weren't so good looking because what they would often do is they'd add words. They'd add words like this. When you come in the text and it says, and Jesus Christ said, they would say, oh, well, it says, I'll call him Jesus Christ the Lord. And they would add some words to it, okay? It wasn't bad. It wasn't like, like they're trying to change the text, but they would oftentimes do that, okay? If you found... Um, if you found a, a recipe with a bunch of added words that were maybe added to clarify something, you'd say, okay, well, those are added clarifications. I mean, they probably wouldn't take away those words. You wouldn't take away clarifying words because you wouldn't want to take away from the Bible, but it might make sense to add a couple words to explain things, okay? Uh, here's the other thing. You want to favor the one that's more widespread, okay? If it's the spread is much wider, then you want to favor that. If there's texts from all the families but one, they say something, you'd probably say, well, if those are, you know, especially if those are newer ones and there's a mistake that comes up in a newer one and all the older ones don't have it, well then, I mean, it probably wasn't there, which is what we're going to get to about John in a minute. Also, you favor the more complicated one, which is, sounds complicated, but it makes sense. If I told you a story that went like this, okay, quote, last night, after the service, the junior high service, the narrow service, after the service last night, I went to go talk to people outside of church. And when I went to go talk to people outside of church, I ran into Kellen. I started talking to Kellen about how his child dedication went, and it was really cool because Tristan grabbed the mic and tried to take it. It was kind of funny. I got text messages about that. But anyway, uh, he, yeah, he tried to take the microphone, little kid. It was really funny. Then after that, I went to my office, and then I went home, and then I went to sleep. End quote. Okay? That's my story. If you took that story as a transcript and you had to copy that down for somebody, okay, do you realize the temptation you would have to fix some of the mistakes I made where I went back and repeated myself? Right? But if you were a good copyist, you'd say, I want to write down exactly what he said because maybe it was important. And at that time, it was not a very important story. But when you're dealing with the Bible, sometimes what people would do is when they copied, they want to smooth it out. If there was a phrase that was long and complicated, they said, well, I think I know what they mean. Here's what they meant. And then instead of copying the original, they kind of smooth it out a little bit, okay? The only, the only reason we're talking about this is because that's a problem. You don't want to do that if your job is just to make a copy, which is what the job of a Bible um, copier is. It's not to add things to the Bible. It's just to copy what the Bible said because we believe that original manuscript is perfect. We don't want to change it. So that's the front side of your worksheet. The backside of your worksheet, really fast, okay? Why I don't think the passage we're talking about belongs. Here's why I don't think it belongs. Okay, you've got a couple things to write down here. First of all, is I don't think it's supported by the manuscript evidence. We just talked about all those 6,000 New Testament Greek manuscripts we have. Well, you would think that if this belongs here and if the John wrote it, it would be found in most of the manuscripts or all the manuscripts. And maybe only a couple of them don't include it. Okay, here's the problem. That's not the case. Think about what your Bible says. It says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811, okay? The earliest manuscripts. So I drew a picture. I'm not much of an artist, but I drew a picture and I want you to see. So once you guys got that written down, now you're still writing, 
You guys got that written down. I want you to take a look at this right here. I drew a picture. You might say, oh, John, that's, that's fake. That's not a real picture. Um, it's a graphic picture. What I did was I tried to represent all of the manuscripts we have. So if you look back to the 100s AD, we would only have a few, right? That P52, we have a couple more fragments. We don't have that many. But then in the 200s, we got more. In the 300s, we have even more. You see how over time we have more and more and more? Okay? So if this is just a general representation of the, the New Testament Greek manuscripts in the 100s, 200s, 300s, 400s, I just only went to 900s. You can go all the way to the 1600s if you want to. Um, how many of these included John 53? And this is just of John, by the way. Okay? This is just of John. Don't worry about the book of Matthew or all that. Okay? How many of these do you think had this story? that's in our Bibles here with brackets, right? I want you to visualize, just look at this. Imagine if, you, so what I, the next slide is um, a bunch of red X's and then green check marks, okay? I want you to imagine, if you looked at this, which ones would have the green check marks and which ones would have the red X's through them? Red X means it wasn't there. Green check mark says it was there, okay? I just want you to visualize, imagine. What do you think, would you think the green would show up early, late, okay? Just imagine that. Now I'm gonna show it to you, okay? Check that out. All the red X's are the ones that don't include it. All the green arrows are the ones that do. They're the green, the green check marks, okay? Here's the problem. None of the earliest manuscripts in the 100s, in the 200s, or in the 300s even include this. We have Gospels of John. We have entire sections of the Gospel of John in the 300s. Zero of them include this story. They just skip straight from 752 to 812. Zero of them have it until that pesky little one in the fourth century or uh, the fifth century, the 400s. You might say, What did this dude do? Okay, well, I want to show you this dude. Um, I actually don't have a picture of the dude, but I do have a picture of his codex. Okay, this is a nice big book that includes this story. In the 400s, late 400s, um, somebody or a group of people put this codex together. Here's the problem um, this dude, right, we'll just call him the dude for now, this dude added tons of information. So I, again, I don't want to bash on him because I don't think he thought we were going to be talking about this 1,600 years later. I think he made a Bible for his family or for his church where he added sections and he included extra things that he thought would be helpful. Okay? I don't think the intention was bad, but the result was bad. Okay, this guy, here, here's a funny stat for you. This guy's Gospel of John okay, has more information. Obviously, it's got 753 to 811. The book of Acts that this guy wrote down, it is 10% bigger than all the other manuscripts of Acts. Think that through, 10% bigger. So if it's got 30 chapters, which is 28, right? It's got like three more chapters worth of material, okay? That is like two pages extra. So again, he's probably adding information and adding phrases to clarify it, okay? It's like he's trying to do a little translation. He's trying to help it along, okay? The problem is that's not really helping because what we want is the Bible untampered with. We don't want his commentary and his thoughts. He adds this story in there. So first of all, I don't think it's there because I don't think it follows the manuscript evidence. Second reason, I don't think it follows the style of John. It does not follow the style of John. Not my style, but John the apostle who wrote this, his style. Remember when I said, was John a doctor or a fisherman? Well, he was a fisherman. He wrote like a fisherman. He wrote simple phrases, and that's good. It doesn't mean he was stupid. It just meant that he wrote clearly and simply. He didn't write for a very educated crowd. He just wrote for anybody who'd pick it up. 
The style of John doesn't fit the style of John, and here's why. I want to give you some examples. Um, there are some phrases that are not in the Gospel of John that are found right here, which is rare, okay? Usually when we have vocabulary, we talk in certain ways, we'll use similar words. If for a period of only a couple verses, he uses all these new words, that's like a, whoa, something's going on, red alert, like, is that, are you sure this is John? Okay. Here's some phrases that are not in the Gospel of John, but we find them right here. One of them is the Mount of Olives. Okay. Here's why this is important. Was the Mount of Olives in John's mind as he wrote this Gospel? Yes. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They go across the way. It says they're even walking on a hill. He never calls it the Mount of Olives. Now, I don't think there's anything spiritual to this, but he was not using that word. Okay. Now, this randomly shows up here when it doesn't show up in the rest of the gospel, even when he talks about the Mount of Olives, but he doesn't call it the Mount of Olives. He calls it something else. Ah, it just doesn't seem like John. Now, the word scribes. You might say, well, the scribes and Pharisees. I've heard that, right? Now think, if you can think of any verses where you heard that, you remember that from the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he talks about the scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. These two groups, it's like peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and jelly. Okay, here's the thing. Um, John only mentions peanut butter. He only talks about the Pharisees. He never uses the word scribes. Guess what he used in this chapter before? He talks, about the, the Pharise- he talks about the Pharisees and the chief priests and the officers. The Pharisees, chief priests and officers, that's what he calls these people. He does not call them the scribes. So randomly this word shows up, the scribes. That doesn't seem right. And the third thing I have is he says, and, 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 and. Now that might sound dumb. John uses the word and, but the problem is this is a writing style. It's like a storytelling style. If I said, and then Jesus went to a town, and then Jesus went to another town, and then you'd say, well, that's his style. He's using and to start these phrases. That's what he does here. Guess what John rarely, rarely does? He rarely does that. But then all of a sudden, in this little section, it's and, and, and. You know what that sounds like? That's how Matthew wrote. That's how Mark wrote. That's even how Luke wrote. John doesn't write that way. So, my thought is whoever put this in there, right? Whoever wrote this down initially, guess what they're doing? They're mimicking the style of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's fine, but the problem is it doesn't belong here, okay? It doesn't belong here. Third thing, it doesn't fit the context of John. Here's what I mean by that. It does not fit the story, the flow, what's going on. Here's why. I want you to think about a couple things. There are some time markers we get in John chapter 7. One of them is in verse 37, famous verse. We already talked about it. Verse 37, it says the last day of the feast, okay? Now, chapter eight, verse two says, and the next morning. So if this story belongs here, what John is trying to say is, oh, we're on another day now, okay? Here's the problem. We were on the last day of the feast. Now we got the day after the feast where all this stuff is happening. That seems a little bit weird, okay? Well, maybe. Problem is then in John eight twelve it says, again, Jesus said to them, who's them? That doesn't make any sense, okay? He doesn't say he says it to the people. He says to them. There's zero context for that unless John 7, 52, the next verses, again, Jesus said to them. Look at John 7, 52. It says, they replied. And who's they? It's the Pharisees, right? Then go to John 8, 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them. Who's he speaking to? The Pharisees, right? That does, if, if John 8, 1 to 11 is here. Who's Jesus? It doesn't even make sense who Jesus is talking to, okay? Here's how you can think it through, okay? I believe that this is how this went. The last day of the feast covered John 7, 37, 
to the end of John 8. This discussion is from the same perspective, okay? But then this other day gets added in here and that totally messes up the flow. I don't think, I think it breaks up what John's trying to say, which is why, again, I don't think this was in John. It was added later. Okay? Um, also, remember when we said this feast of tabernacles last week, there's all this symbolism. And one of the symbols is water and they'd pour water out on this hot October day. They'd pour it out on the ground. It'd be the symbol of how God took care of the Israelites and gave them water. Well, there was another symbol. It was a symbol of lights. They would light lamps. Okay. What does Jesus say in John 8, 12 about himself? I am the light of the world. Okay, this is the last day of the festival. Guess what Jesus is doing? He's using the water symbol. He's using the light symbol. Problem is if John 8, 1 to 11 was there, this is a different day. This is a different feast. This is a different time. I think this all happened on the same day. Also, here's something maybe more definitive. John 8, 12 to 20, guess what he's referencing? He's referencing an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 9. Guess what Isaiah 9 is talking about? This light is going to arise. Where's it going to come from? The land of Dan and Naphtali, okay? Where's Dan and Naphtali? Galilee. What are the Jews disputing about? Right before they're saying, oh, no prophet can come from Galilee. Again, Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world, okay? Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that should remind them, oh, wait a minute. Isaiah 9 does say a light is going to come from Galilee. Oh, no. Right? Here's the problem. If there's this break in between, he's talking to a different group, addressing a different thing. It doesn't make sense why he's bringing it up. But if it's not there, it makes perfect sense. Also, this story is found not just in John 7:52, not just after John 7:52. It's also found in the middle of John 7, different portion of John 7. It's also found at the end of John 21. It's found in Luke 21, and it's also found at the end of Luke 24. Here's the problem. Whenever this is added to manuscripts, especially at the beginning, they put stars around it, brackets around it, like we don't even know where this goes. Some people put it in the middle of the Gospel of Luke because they're like, I know this doesn't sound like John. Maybe this belongs somewhere else. That's the problem here. It doesn't work with the manuscript. It also doesn't fit with the context. Okay, last thing, last bullet point. I think that no early church fathers comment on it. Okay, here's what this, this is why this is important. For two or three centuries before the Council of Nicaea and there was peace in the Roman Empire, um, with, for Christians, that is. Before that, we've got these preachers writing down sermons or they're writing letters to people. And we've been able to see those over time and we have those documents too, okay? Here's a picture of me um, in front of a whole set of books. That's at the CBI library. You could visit that and you could touch those books or maybe read them too. Um, that big set of books um, is all about what these early church fathers and what we, those are the people in the early church who wrote, okay? I'm talking about people from the 100s to the 300s especially, okay? This set of books right here has all their writings, as many as we have at least, up to 1890, whenever they translated it. Guess what they're doing all the time? They're always quoting the Bible, okay? Even more than that, guess what they're doing all the time in their sermons? They're always quoting the Bible. They do what we do, right? When I talk about the Bible, right? Guess what we do? We quote the Bible. We don't just quote one passage. We quote tons of passages, okay? Guess what passage they never quote in the early church? They never quote this, okay? Why? Because it wasn't there. It wasn't there, right? That's not definitive proof. I think the more definitive proof is in the manuscript evidence, but this is solid backing too, okay? It begins to appear, especially in the West, in the 400s, okay? In the 400s, people finally start to reference it. What about in the East? When did they start referencing it? This might shock you, but we have no proof of any Eastern church fathers quoting this passage until the 1100s. Here's the point. I think they knew all along this didn't belong here. Um, 
But now here's, here's the random question that you might have been asking the whole time. Then why is it here, right? Why is it here? Well, if you were a copier and you got a copy that had this in, you wouldn't say, oh, that doesn't belong here. Cross that. You would you'd be like, no, I don't want to do anything to this Bible. Like, I want to just copy it faithfully. Once it kind of gets in the flow of these copies, it stays there, okay? Uh, I think the reason it's in your ESV, if you have an ESV, is because it was in the KJV, okay? the King James Version. King James Version used some older, not older manuscripts like um, like close to the original, they used some later manuscripts, okay? Because they didn't have the earlier manuscripts at that point. And that's okay. I don't fault them for it. They didn't have the manuscripts yet. They hadn't been discovered. But once we discover these earliest manuscripts, then we can get back to a closer and closer reading of the original text, okay? So here's the question. Did this even happen? That's another question that I know we don't have much time for, but did it happen? Um, here's my take on it. I think it might've it might have happened. Yes, it might've happened. So I don't want to say there's nothing we can learn from it. It, it didn't happen. It might have happened. But here's the problem. John didn't write it. And we can say that pretty definitively. After everything we've looked at today, John didn't write it. And because of that, I can't say with 100% certainty that it did happen. But it sounds like Jesus. It sounds like something he would do, right? There's a lot of tradition that they had about Jesus, stories people told about Jesus that um, weren't written down in the Bible, but things that happened. Think about it. I mean, um, John, even at the end of his, bu- his book, he says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, the whole world could not contain all the books that describe what Jesus did. So this might have been one of those things Jesus did that was just never written down by a gospel writer. So maybe it's helpful that we have it. There is something we can learn from it. But here's the thing I spent most of our time talking about, and I want you to take away. We can trust God's word. Okay? We're not just stupid, blind people picking up a book and saying, well, this must be the truth. Okay? This is a book that is attested by um, the science of textual criticism, by archaeology, by the books we have, and more importantly, by what it says itself what it predicts is going to happen, what came through fulfillment. Also, what it says about us as humans, that is true. Well, we got to take away from this sermon. I know it was a different sermon. We didn't really look at the passage, but hopefully this is helpful. You need to trust God's word. When you pick it up, you're not just reading an old book. You are reading an old book, but it's God's book. And we still have um, a faithful representation of the original. So let's pray. As we head out, we work on trusting God's word more. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the ability to have these manuscripts. You know, for so many years, the church did not have the oldest and um, they went with what they had. And I just thank you that even when they had little mistakes, that they weren't massive mistakes. Um, Even those older translations, they very faithfully represent what your word says. But we want to represent what your word says the best we can. Uh, So I, I pray that we would not take away all this doubt from the sermon, but we take away trust realizing that you have preserved your word. You've given us so much evidence to believe the Bible. All the manuscripts, way more than any other book. Even the time gap being the shortest. You're just so faithful to give us all the evidence and more that we need to believe that the Bible we have today is the real Bible. It's the Bible that John wrote. The Bible that Mark wrote and Matthew wrote and Paul wrote. I just pray that we would trust it more and more and that this week when we open up our Bibles, that we'd get in it with more hunger We'd just be more excited about understanding what it says and applying it to our lives. In Jesus' name.